0: and Vowel is a movement committed to exploring and responding to the unexpected ways that God is moving and speaking, in and around us. This podcast is part of that. We want to have conversations that matter with folks in all kinds of walks of life because we believe that the God of the Bible so often shows up in surprising and everyday kinds of ways. We want to pay attention and talk about that, and just maybe be changed by it all. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hey there, I'm Aaron, host of the Foxes and Fowl podcast. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Dr. Michael Griffin, who teaches philosophy and classics at the University of British Columbia. Michael's been celebrated for his gifts as a teacher and lecturer, which is no surprise given the passion and joy that he brings to his work. On top of his accomplishments as an academic, which are many, he's really a wonderful human being and I'm delighted to call him my friend. I hope you benefit from his insights as much as I do. Let's get to it. <laughs> Dr. Michael Griffin, it is so good to see you, my friend. How are you today?
1: Reverend Aaron Miller, really good to see you too. Um, <laughs> doing okay is as good as we could be doing right now, I think.
0: Yeah, I kind of wanted to how about start you? there. How, how, how are things in this weird academic season? How, how, how's it been for you uh, to do your job and Do you have a a sense of how students are are doing?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I have a feeling that it is uh, maybe sort of going back. I'm working with first year students a lot, and I think first year is always a little bit alienating at university, this big kind of jump, obviously. um, And the kind of just like there's less support at university Mm -hmm. for, you know, as much as UBC might do to try to support mental health and generally make things okay. So I think there's always that kind of uh, challenge and a little bit of isolation in first year. And obviously it's really magnified this year. So without knowing a lot, I have a sense from my classes that it is a it is a really challenging time. I mean, it's the it's a hard time of term in an unusually hard year. Uh, And then I think faculty are definitely where on the bright side we're kind of all in it together we're all doing something new and unfamiliar Uh, so we've got that in common with uh, with students just arriving but um yeah i think a lot of our sort of routines and habits don't work as well so uh we're, we're learning on the fly and that has its own stresses but in general i think i'm feeling really really blessed here we're in a we're in a safe place on campus um and generally able to able to keep okay and i think yeah, I mean, even just this kind of chance to to talk to each other is yeah. really welcome right now.
0: I said to someone the other day that it's nice not to be the only one who has no idea what they're doing, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it, yeah.
0: There's a bit of grace in the fact that we are all trying to figure this thing out, so.
1: Yeah, well,
0: definitely. I, 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 and I do agree that uh, just the chance to kind of even virtually be in each other's presence is, is uh, especially important these days.
1: Really welcome right now, yeah. Yeah,
0: Good. Well, as you know, one of the things that uh, I want to talk about in this podcast is this kind of idea of vocation, uh, or calling, or ultimately what we're supposed to do with ourselves and how to work that out. And and one of the things I love about you is, uh, at least as I perceive it, uh, you hold all sorts of different facets of your life and work together in a really meaningful and coherent way. So that's something I appreciate about you as a friend. But uh, I'd love to hear you uh, talk a little bit about uh, your sense of vocation. I, I also know that you've been in the academic world a long time uh, given your relative age. <laughs> uh, you've got a lot of years uh, in, in academics. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about how how you've kind of grown into the work that you do and how you understand your sense of calling through that work.
1: Well, that's that's really um, kind of you to say. the The first part about the facets fitting together, I'm still trying to figure that out for sure. To talk about something where it feels like we we all don't know what we're doing. Uh, yeah, vocation seems like a great a great theme to to think about that with intellectual humility. Um, yeah, I think it's also kind of a funny point about being in academia for a long time. I was thinking about that when I had my first leave uh, for research sabbatical a few years ago that I'd been. Kind of in uh, in a university classroom in some form for like 20 years without <laughs> really taking a break <laughs> getting a sense of yeah there's, there's sort of other ways of seeing the world i guess um but yeah i guess my sense of um uh, whatever we kind of mean together by vocation or calling or sort of uh, work in in life is definitely informed by my experience as an academic um I'm still kind of figuring out what that means, Uh, it might be like this in your profession too, but in academia, definitely it feels like um, most of us have a lot of imposter syndrome through grad school and it doesn't really go away for a long time. Uh, But I think um, uh, the more the more I've been doing it uh, at sort of teaching and research and being in a, a community at the university, the more I've been trying to answer that question for myself too, or at least figure out how to frame the question like what difference does this make uh what's the meaning of this kind of work i think a lot of students are feeling that now too and you know mm. for a generation it's just kind of felt like maybe the thing you do if you if you can and if you're in a position to is to go get a college degree after high school um, but now when you know it seems like the world is a lot more there's so much more going on and so much of it seems so urgent uh it, it's kind of there's a renewed reason to ask that question like what what are universities for? What is this kind of really specialized project of uh, of knowledge about? And uh, I don't know how does that sort of uh, contribute a narrative to our own lives individually, and and do anything to make a difference collectively. So that's sort of a long winded way of saying I don't really know. But <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think I um, think it. I've I've started to feel like there is value in every discipline's way of trying to see the world um, differently to give us a sort of different lens on, on our experience, whether it's like dance or arts or engineering or math, you know, seeing the world as a mathematician, seeing the world as a sociologist, seeing the world as a poet, um, maybe kind of shows us aspects that were hidden in the kind of lens we just grew up with. And secondly, that those lenses can also give us um, maybe sort of snapshots of ways the world could be different. Mm. So, uh, I guess like it, it's hard to think of concrete examples in a way, but op- obviously, there's a sort of case where, you know, um, being a, a pharmacologist or an epidemiologist or uh, working in virology right now is really significant that you can easily see a way that you can, you know, make a difference to mm. faster vaccine developments in the future. But I think that's like true for, for architecture, for engineering, um, and for arts just as much. You can kind of see how through the imagination games we play in a discipline, things could change and how your discipline could help to sort of even just communicate that possibility. So I'm sort of, I guess, rolling that idea around that um is, as sort of hyper-specialized and different as a lot of disciplines can be, just having this plurality of really different ways of experiencing the world and conceiving how it can be different could be mm. meaningful. So I guess that's a way I'm trying to articulate it for myself.
0: That's, that's great. Uh, that touches on so many things I wanna to talk to you about. Oh, cool. <laughs> you've, you've set me up really nicely, which is a very kind thing for you to do. Um, I, I, I know that from our own just conversations between the two of us over the last few years that uh, throughout your time as a student, um, and, and as you pursued various degrees and courses of study you have this sort of habit of gravitating towards uh, areas of study that at least some folks around you warned you away from <laughs> and you pursued them anyways and I kind of want to I, I want to probe that a little bit because I think it's interesting and I think as you know I think it's not unrelated to what you've already said uh, so what's that about <laughs> why did you keep going places people told you not to go
1: well that's a, that's a- Great question. Um, I guess I, I put a little bit of context to that, that I uh, I guess one of the anecdotes we might've talked about before I, w- I came to university, initially planning to major in computer science and was taking some classes there. And then I took my electives in, uh, in classics. So in like ancient Greek and Roman studies and languages, which uh, had been a sort of passion of mine since I was since I was a kid when I was homeschooled. Mm -hmm. and uh, fell in love with those electives and sort of made a move to do classics. And then within classics, uh, wound up doing something kind of even more obscure and specific, but again, kind of connected with my childhood interest in Greek philosophy. And then within Greek philosophy, I did like the most obscure in a way, uh, period. So not like, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the core, but uh, late antiquity which is fascinating, lots of new work to do, but again, sort of like each one of these turns could be kind of baffling. So I had lots of, I mean, I was really lucky, I think I felt really supported through those, those hard decisions, not to say that I, I wasn't, I, I feel really uh, lucky in uh, the sort of both wisdom and care, but you can kind of imagine how each of those decisions might raise a question like, that's great that you're excited about ancient Greek, more than about, you know, Python or C coding or something, but, you know, are you sure it's like, that's the right long-term decision? Um, And yeah, in each of those cases, I think I was trying to, uh, if there's any consistency to it, which might just be kind of confabulation after the fact, you know, telling myself an encouraging (laughs) story that there's meaning here. But I think I was led to believe that if I really, really love doing something that, just in virtue of doing it so much, even if I was I was pretty slow because I felt pretty slow at a lot of it, um, then I would eventually get get better at it. And uh, if I got you know better at it, maybe I'd be able to make a living at it, or somehow it would kind of make sense. Um, so I kept doing the things that felt, I guess, most most meaningful, and also I don't know if it makes sense, kind of in a wholesome way, the most enjoyable, mm-hmm. uh, and and yeah I, I even though there was definitely that sort of you know well a good-natured encouragement to think of all the different alternatives from my my uh, some of my professors and and so on i still uh yeah i felt like that was that was right and it turned out i think the way it turned out to be true for me is that that it turned out there was a space for that really specific thing that i enjoyed mm. and found myself to be so I think that kind of encouraged me to believe that if you do the really unique individual thing that's you there's room for it because you know there's room in the world for you um I think I'm also kind of you know coming from a position of quite a bit of privilege and saying that I know that's not going to reflect everybody's experience mm-hmm. but i i hope I believe that there's there's always reason reason to find your room in the world
0: um, mm. yeah. That's beautiful, uh, and I wonder how. I mean, maybe that's exactly what you say to your students or something. But I wonder how, how your kind of experience influences the way that uh, you guide your students now. If some if some student comes to your office and says, <laughs> "I want to explore an even more obscure Greek uh, <laughs> philosopher," something. What do you do?
1: Yeah, that's a good question too. Uh, I think it's. Um, I definitely feel a responsibility in that, that uh, I have to try to get across as realistic a picture of, of the academic landscape and job market and the, you know, if it's that kind of case that I know. Not all those questions I I know anything about, so students might also come to me with a totally different kind of life plan that I, <laughs> and, you know, what if I did this really cool thing with Greenpeace out in the Baltic Sea or something, I'd be like that sounds great, but I, I don't know enough to have any helpful advice, but I think um yeah in the academic context uh as long as it's sort of honest and clear and somewhat transparent what the challenges are um i i I try to do that too like i was advised but then to encourage that um that sort of inner sense of hope and Mm. and character to I, i do like telling that story that it feels to me like if you really love something then um there's a pretty good chance that You'll find a kind of unique way of doing it that's your own. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, d- I do try to encourage that as well as being realistic.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. And I, I mean, I know from talking to people that we mutually know, and from you know the the way that you've been uh, accoladed already <laughs> uh, in your career that 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 passion continues to shine through. And it's uh, you know I think it's a great gift. I, I'm glad that students have someone like you to look at. To say like this is what it can look like to to do a thing I love.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Aaron. That's, that's uh, nice. My... I, I I feel like that with you too, for whatever that's worth. You seem to sort of radiate the sense that you're you're in your place in the world. And yeah, there's Not a joy way. in it.
0: Yeah, thanks. We're we're working it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. Well, I, I you already touched on it a little bit um about you know, each discipline has its own kind of special lens on the world. Uh it, each discipline helps us to understand ourselves and what's going on around us a little differently. I wonder, I, I didn't prep you for this because I want the the honest answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, what, Do you have like an elevator pitch for why people should study philosophy? Oh
1: boy, I should by now, shouldn't I? Um, yeah, I think uh, one of the things you would find about philosophy is that there's as many answers to that question as there are uh, people who, who ask it? <laughs> I think so. Um, my my might not necessarily you know be one size fits all. Uh, I w- really the kind of thing I was just saying. So um, this is a lousy elevator pitch because it's kind of lengthy, but <laughs> I think
0: long. <laughs> uh, on. We're going to the top floor.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so philosophy and its root is people uh, often hear means the love of wisdom or curiosity um the longing to understand Uh, so in its roots it kind of means the entirety of academia Uh, Mm. so it you know it's not just one department it is the kind of curiosity that leads you to want to understand the world uh, and yourself and i think um there's two ways that that is absolutely critical so one is um the one i was just saying that uh, this curiosity leads us to see the world a bit more as it really is uh, and hopefully that gives us a chance to be a little better in the world. Uh, secondly, that this kind of curiosity leads us to see um, the world and ourselves a little more as we could be, which is sort of up to each of us, I think, to discover, determine. Um, so there's a a saying that you know, children are kind of like the R&D team of the human race because they have mm-hmm. these amazing imaginations. Uh, you've, you've got two amazing boys, and so you uh, see that all the time, I know they're really imaginative um without imagination we wouldn't have you know iPhones or shelters or uh zoom uh the ways we're responding right now to our our global crises and i think um, philosophy is especially about um strengthening exploring expanding our imaginations mm-hmm. so those are kind of the the two things that really stand out to me is like this um pitch for uh being curious enough to try to see the world beyond the way we initially assume it is based on how how we come into it and secondly this sort of possibility of cultivating our imaginations to see possibilities of difference mm. um for for me coming into it uh both philosophy and classics i i came into it having really enjoyed sort of fantasy science fiction stories as a kid mm-hmm. so i think that's part of why i i think of them as like imagination experiments uh and mutual discovery uh that's really that's really stuck with me and yeah so that would be that's maybe that's less an elevator pitch but that's that's (laughs) how i'm trying to think about it at least
0: yeah no that's great and i I was just thinking as you were talking you know both of us spend quite a lot of time in ancient texts (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know and and we make this claim that they're somehow meaningful and relevant to our life in the 21st century. Um, I wonder, I've always thought that part of the reason that we engage, at least in the church, we engage with the past is there's a kind of democratizing. (laughs) Like we actually give our ancestors a voice. uh, So it sort of expands our possibilities by including those voices that are no longer there, but they they allow, and I wonder, is that I I am assuming that there's a kind of parallel uh, there with with what you do uh, when you study ancient Greek philosophers. <laughs>
1: <or> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Uh, I really like that. That's a really nice idea. this sort of democratization of you know different perspectives that we win by making people from you know especially writers from uh, different ancient cultures and contexts our dialogue partners. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I guess I kind of think about that in, in my context, in Greek philosophy, in a couple of ways. Uh, it is, well, in, in a way, like reading about Socrates does feel very much to me like reading um, about any of these these kinds of inspirational figures from the, the Axial Age and later, um, the Buddhist texts, Confucian texts, Taoist texts, and then definitely like the New Testament too. Um, there's a sense that there's a kind of insight and curiosity, as I was just saying about the human condition, that is still a kind of living dialogue partner, but also different enough mm-hmm. from the context that we're in now, or at least that I'm in now, that it can be really nourishing to engage with and and ask questions from that different place. It's a great imagination workout, in the sense we were just talking about. Um, there's this kind of impression I think you'd be sensitive to that. Um, so much of the tradition that I'm working in is, let's say, you know dominated by mostly wealthy male voices from a particular sector of, of ancient Greek society. So especially um, with I think critical tools and questions that are available now, uh, there's there's a kind of a need in having that conversation to be sensitive to the, the context and the perspective um that a lot of the ideas are articulated in for for me at least while being sensitive to that there's also a sense that um that's also something to learn from that um in a way both the really the really good ideas and the really bad ideas (laughs) are uh are you know without sort of giving too much amplification to the bad ideas keeping them uh keeping the whole sort of um the whole network of questions in conversation uh mm. helps us uh, in a way to be inoculated or at least awake to the problems as well as the the good mm. so uh for example i was i was talking this last week with a class about uh plato's republic and the there's this great uh at least initially seems really great passage in um, Republic Five, where uh, Plato Socrates is making what seems like a really revolutionary case for the equality of women and men in government and education, um, and the interlocutors in the conversation—they're, you know, not, not painted by Plato as particularly progressive. <laughs> they're kind of like, what the, what the heck, that a dumb idea that is. And Socrates is sort of holding to uh, the principle that, no, if we're going to have a just society, and we're going to have um you know we're going to be true to the sort of principle we're working with that um everybody should really be able to realize their own potential then we're it will have to follow that um, uh, not only sort of gender but all kinds of other factors are totally irrelevant in figuring Mm out um who's going to be in a, a good position to educate or guide policy in a state. So this seemed this is, to me, awesome in a way, this is great. And in, in context, really unique. And then on another level, you can see that the argument is um, still it, there's, uh, there's no concern for individual rights in the argument, say that how it's motivated is all about what's going to be good for the community or the state as a whole. Mm. Um, so you can also kind of see where, um, where we can go further where the sort of context even of a really sort of awesome idea and development like that uh, by being in dialogue with it we can sort of get a more refined sense of what we can gain mm. uh, so that's sort of a way that it's like can feel like a good imagination workout and in, in a way the whole republic seems like an imagination workout some of it is a lot crazier from our point of view some of it seems <laughs> really progressive uh, but it's a sort of really interesting kind of almost science fiction experiment the characters are doing Hmm. and as as that example suggests can lead to really good places too
0: that's awesome uh and i i'm sure that's a gift to your students to be able to imagine these you know what they probably assume at the beginning are not particularly (laughs) relevant texts something in which they might find actually some some really deep and meaningful truth about how we ought to live our lives now. Uh, that's, that's that's excellent.
1: I hope so, or at least even negative witnesses. But <laughs> either way, something <laughs> right. that's that's good to good to think with and talk with. Yeah,
0: yeah. Hey, um, academics uh, can be an environment that's sort of notoriously, uh, I don't know, cutthroat. Might not be the right word, <laughs> but it, <laughs> it can be a challenging environment. I think, and I I, I wanted to ask you about how you navigate some of those challenges in an, an institution. Um and,
1: uh, yeah, so lots of lots of strong opinions. Um sometimes, you know, the the old joke that academic politics is so vicious because the stakes are so low. Sometimes things don't seem all that <laughs> important, but we really get fired up about it. Sometimes obviously the stakes are high and it is really important. Uh-huh. Um, I I guess I have I have definitely gone I think, down uh, wrong roads, and I hope learned a little bit from them. Um, I think the uh, i've I've found as we've been having conversations about how to kind of host healthy conversations and decisions. Mm. Um, that I and mean, this is all, I guess kind of grade school stuff in a way, but easy to forget sometimes that it's really important for people to feel genuinely heard. Um, uh, and, and not just sort of, uh, superficially, but whatever, whatever principles they're really caring about to be able to, to get them across, um, the distinction between like, um, the, the principles that we might share and the procedure we want to use, uh, to realize them and, and the outcome that we're looking for, it seems like often taking those three, I learned this from a colleague, um we might have principles in common and an outcome we want to see in common, um, but we might disagree vehemently about the process to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but framing it that way can help, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, to sort of see that we're not as far apart as we might seem um, mm-hmm. and and to kind of guide us a little that way. Um, and I guess, uh, finally, um, it's helpful to remember that we're all human beings and there's a much bigger World again, if it, especially at a public university that we are sort of serving at the the pleasure and need of the people of British Columbia in this case, well, it sounds kind of <laughs> dramatic, but generally the, a public university and have that sense that we are it is a kind of service work that we're doing. So um, trying to kind of keep that in mind as we go can at least help me feel less stressed out about paper clips. Uh, or <laughs> you know, not to make too much light of it, but whatever whatever it is that we're, sometimes ah. it, it is really serious. But sometimes I think, yeah, um, it can be it could be put in context, uh, especially at a time like this. So I guess, yeah, just trying to kind of listen to each other, trying again to kind of make space for healthy conversations where we can at least emphasize or recognize where our common ground is, both in principles and goals, mm. and and kind of keeping it in perspective seems to seems to help um but yeah like i said i've i've definitely not always done the right thing and i'm still <laughs> learning and i hope by the time i retire i'll actually have some uh some good advice.
0: <laughs> well you've got i hope you've got a lot of years before that so me
1: too. <laughs> me too. Me <laughs> too.
0: That's good. Um I want to i mean you've already kind of touched on it and i, I suspect that uh teaching, I mean, I'm not sure how long you've been teaching full time, but it's been a while. And I suspect it's slightly different now than when you started. Uh, Just uh, forget COVID. Uh, Let's assume that that's different, but not permanent. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, I suspect that just the the academic environment, uh, the types of ways that students are coming into school are different than perhaps when you first started. I'm wondering if you can reflect on that a little bit. But also, I. I want to kind of probe something you brought up earlier and I think you've probably touched on it a bit already but you know this idea of what what are universities for and what are they going to be for in 10 years um mm. because I think you know people of our generation are sort of painfully aware that a degree does not get you a job necessarily. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, good point. So yeah. I've heard. Yeah. Oh, well those are great questions too. I think um on the first one, I mean the main thing that's changed is that people don't seem to get my pop culture references anymore. So I don't know where the heck they're getting their, you know, gee, what's with this music? Anyway, yeah. So the I, I think 10 years ago when I was starting teaching, uh <laughs> I felt like, oh yeah, we're totally on the same page here. And then now I'm like, what what right. sus? What is that what's <laughs> sus? I don't I don't get it. So I'm learning slowly or I'm at least learning that I I don't really know what's going on anymore. So that's one thing, but more seriously, I guess, uh, I have a feeling at least like the um, students coming into classrooms now compared to like 10 years ago or even five years ago, it it just feels to me like there's more of a kind of fire of urgency for change, um, especially sort of systemic and social change and a kind of consciousness that wasn't so at at least doesn't feel to me like it was so pronounced um at 10 or again even five years ago. So I think that also kind of is inviting us who are, you know, to, to kind of rethink this the syllabus that we're offering, think a bit more about um about how how we're representing or trying to begin to represent uh diversity in our curriculum. Um, trying to you know even if we are teaching or thinking about something that's relatively obscure uh obscure i don't know just more sp- special interest uh than to to at least kind of bring into focus uh even blurly, how how thinking through this lens as i was saying before could be um important in the world right now um so i think that definitely i mean that that's another way that it feels like faculty as well as students are sort of um, in it together, learning new things that um, the older kind of habits of thought don't always seem quite right anymore. So I think that it it feels like a a delight in a way to be growing intellectually, um, but it also feels like uh, it's a, a kind of, there's a lot of newness there um so i think that in the, if philosophy really is or, or like classics really is the things that i'm doing are really about this kind of cultivation of curiosity then hopefully that's that can only be a good thing mm. um on the second point i mean the the really big question what are universities for i'll go back in time uh, as i kind of want to do i guess but <laughs> back to the republic of plato again as uh, for all those both uh good and challenging steps as a kind of imagination game, a lot of it leads up to um, Plato's pitch for uh, the kind of the concept of an institution of higher education. Mm. And in a way, the the curriculum that um, Plato's Socrates is laying out in book seven in the famous allegory of the cave, you know, where people are stuck looking at shadows they think are real and then somebody frees them and gets them out of the cave and they're like, holy cow, there's like all this stuff here that isn't shadows. And then they go back and try <laughs> to tell people and people get really irritated about it. Um, and then kind of foreboding of Socrates' fate might even try to put this person to death who keeps raving about there being anything but shadows. But this all kind of gets set out as an argument for the, the need for the kind of uh, critical inquiry that uh that plato thinks a kind of institution that doesn't yet exist in his social context could cultivate and for him that includes um mathematics and geometry and astronomy and music uh this becomes a sort of foundation later of the in kuklios paideia the kind of total education um or, or like comprehensive education for um uh, schools in following centuries, which is the ground of the medieval trivium and quadrivium, which gives us a lot of the liberal arts curriculum, and later, to some degree, uh, at least in a kind of European context, lots of the the German-inspired research university. Uh, mm. And then, of course, there's all these other sort of university traditions in the world that are are amazing. Uh, in in India, like the Nalanda tradition, um, and in China, and uh, I think of how the the first peoples of the world like. The Musqueam people here, where where I'm sitting, uh, on this traditional ancestral unceded territory, uh, were storytellers whose um, whose ways of um, asking questions through story were also cultivating that kind of inquiry and curiosity about the world. Mm. Um, in my sort of the the flavor of studying, if if it's fair to sort of connect all these traditions of higher education, it seems like they they all have a little bit in, in common in, um, in trying to sort of liberate us from, um, from what Plato thinks of as this kind of cave of ignorance, which isn't just ignorance, but it's sort of um, taking the, the opinions around us as fact without um, finding our own sort of flavor way of asking questions about them. Mm. Uh, and and again, doing it in, in these very sort of, um, special ways that can become academic disciplines, even something as sort of methodical as mathematics or something as as artful as as poetry or dance, uh, that can sort of give us some lift, give us a bit of distance from appearances. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think that that sort of um, big picture project is still alive. And it seems important that um, it is a pluralistic project in a way that there's lots of different ways of knowing and asking questions represented. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think that the kind of the Greek platonic way of doing that, that I'm, that I got so excited about as, as a kid and a student and i teaching now is kind of, is one of the, um, one of the colors in that sort of spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it seems important that there's, there's lots and lots of colors in the spectrum that kind of give us uh, a whole picture um one last thing i'll say quickly i guess that um for for plato too that kind of project of uh, of the escape from the cave of, of getting to ask these kinds of questions isn't just about knowledge but it's most importantly about finding our own sort of distinctive way of life back to the theme of vocation and, and authenticity mm-hmm. it's like um, figuring out the acorn to oak tree thing that each of us are uniquely doing the the mm. potentials that are really sort of Michaels or Aaron's uh, to realize. And whether you're kind of thinking of that, that as a, I don't know, as, as sort of some fact about the world that there just is this kind of potential for us to realize, or if it feels more like it's kind of art, it's like yours to create, discover your dance to dance. Mm. Um, I, I kind of like that, that flavor, that idea of kind of finding your, your most authentic potential to make real as self-helpy as it might, might feel. So I like the idea that the idea of the university has some roots there too.
0: Cool. I uh, as as I've had the chance to ask about uh, vocation to a few different people already. A one of the things that's coming clearer is this sense that vocation isn't so much exactly what we do as the ground from which we do it. Uh, and. So I think you've articulated that uh, uh, quite, quite clearly. I, That's beautiful. I'm just, uh, I'm grateful for, for people like you who, who keep us imagining and hoping and uh, it's good stuff. I wanted to uh, ask you what you're working on now. What are you excited about? Anything in particular?
1: Oh yeah. Well, um, well, my wife and I are having our first child in January. So I'm really, <laughs> as you know, uh, excited about uh-huh. that, but I, I can't take any credit for being like yeah working at that like a, but it's amazing so'm i i'm um I think that's my my sort of biggest light uh and excitement right now um slightly behind that I'm thinking about book projects uh so i'm I'm trying to um to work out a, a research project as you know because we've chatted about this before. Uh, about what was called the scale of virtues in late Mm. antique Greek philosophy. Um, So here we go with another one of those sort of obscure ideas within an obscure idea, but it was uh, not so obscure then and kind of connects with our our thoughts about university because it was a a structure for curriculum as well as for um, personal sort of study, character development and uh, trying to understand the, the dimensions of human possibility. So this kind of um, there's sort of three main stages to this idea for the the neoplatonists that I'm studying and uh, writing about. Um, one to sort of um, explore and understand the givens of our nature that that come with both nature and habit. so again, kind of acorn to oak tree like on the one hand, what's in the seed we're growing from uh, and what's, uh, what sort of networks of habits have we learned that have kind of uh, grown over that seed, um, both good and bad for us in the course of our, our upbringing experiences in the world and education. So just kind of observing and recognizing those dimensions of ourselves. And then there's a sort of middle stage, which is, uh, which is where they put a lot of the philosophical curriculum uh, where we're trying to kind of recognize our inner city or inner polis, with all the different citizens that go to make up our motivations, our desires, our versions our emotions, our th- thoughts—how they all motivate us—and how they're sort of like a, a community, a town trying to get along, um, and then trying to explore what are healthy ways to um to kind of find a constitution for that inner city, where the Platonists think usually it's a matter of, of finding harmony so that every one of these motivations in us has a kind of voice at the table, but none as a tyrant. Mm uh and then there's kind of this this gradual practice of trying to bring even more harmony unity focus to to that inner diversity um again without sort of tyranny or cacophony and then the final sort of stage in the story um where they put a lot of their their favorite poetry art Mm -hmm. uh music is inspiration so sort of this is not so much about a, a kind of work or a a constructive practice, but about sensitivity and receptivity to um, again, it can be arts, music, um, friendships, people, ideas, uh, anything that really moves us. So from this, the kind of view of these, these Platonists, this kind of combination of the the observation of where we are, what we're kind of given, and then the um this kind of project of inner transparency and harmony and then this kind of cultivation of sensitivity to inspiration is a way of kind of giving structure to that acorn to oak tree project Mm. Uh, so a lot of the texts are are not um translated into english yet or are a little bit um i know just very uh specialized in kind of technical language for these ideas so i'm working on some translations and on trying to kind of synthesize the concept. Yeah.
0: Oh, look forward thanks, to that. Thanks
1: for asking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't always get to talk about that. You, you didn't even wander off.
0: Sounds, sounds like yeah. a great project. And uh, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for your time today. I hope you have a marvelous uh, parental leave. I'm thank excited you. excited so for you and Angie. And uh, and yeah, I just want to thank you for all you're bringing to, to this world. Uh, It's been a lot of fun to talk to you today.
1: That's so beautiful of you to say. Thank you. And you too, Aaron. It's always nice to see you. (laughs) Likewise. All
0: right, take care. Hey, thanks for being here. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael as much as I did. Here are some things I'm thinking about from our time. One, as we go about our work, it's good to ask what difference it makes and what meaning does it have. Not everything has to have cosmic import, but these are important questions for urgent times. Second, get as many lenses as you can. Be as curious as you can be. These are the things that will help us see the world more clearly and imagine new, different, and hopefully better ways to be in it. Third, sometimes we only see meaning in hindsight, and that's okay. Fourth, it's important to work out our imaginations. Imagination is one of God's great gifts. Spend some time with it. Fifth, these days we're in it together, learning new things. So let's be gracious with ourselves and with one another. And finally, there is room in the world for you. Thanks to the Foxes and Fowl team, the University Hill Congregation, and the Pacific Mountain region of the United Church of Canada for making this possible. Until next time, grace and peace.